Welcome to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. Today, we're going to talk about the climate impact of plastics. That's right, plastics, those ubiquitous units that make up the bulk of our packaging, computers, appliances, electronics, cars, clothing, carry out, pretty much everything we use is plastic. And plastics are everywhere. Not only where we want them, but where we don't. Landfills are overflowing with plastics that have a shelf life of two to six centuries. I have a friend in Chile, South America, that lives near a landfill that contains mountains of discarded American clothing, fast fashion plastic that will be around for centuries. I just saw a documentary about Bolivia's Lake of Plastic, a 12-mile lake that is totally filled with plastic bags, bottles, single-use containers. This is a region that should be pristine wilderness, and instead it's a giant plastic dump. Not to be confused with the giant Pacific garbage patch, which is an island of plastic in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, estimated to be around 1.6 million square kilometers in size. That's about twice the size of Texas. And that's just one of the giant plastic islands that are growing in our oceans. The chemical structure of plastic means it can never fully disintegrate. As it ages, it becomes brittle and breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces. Those microplastics work their way into our waterways, into our oceans, and up our food chains. Microplastics are now found throughout our bodies, in our stomachs, our intestines, and our lungs. The 2020 study found microplastics in the placentas of unborn babies, and a 2022 study has now found microplastics in 75% of all human breast milk. So plastics are obviously a huge environmental and health problem, but how does that affect the climate? Well, I think most of us know that plastics are made from fossil fuels. That's the same crude oil that is refined into gasoline for our cars. And if you don't know that, well, surprise. Look at the plastics around you right now. Your room and car are filled with fossil fuel plastics. The equipment I'm talking to you through is plastic. You're wearing fossil fuels, probably a polyester blend, maybe rayon, nylon, spandex. All of these petrotextiles are made from crude oil. We're making progress on shuttering coal-fired power plants, moving to wind, solar, and other renewables. But while these climate activists are focused on the power and climate sectors, Big oil is quietly redirecting billions of dollars into petrochemical plants to produce more and more plastics. Drilling for the same amount of crude oil, just redirecting their oil into plastics. Wind and solar is the solution to clean power. Electric vehicles are the solution to clean energy. But until we find an alternative to plastics, the climate crisis will continue. The US plastics industry releases around 230 metric tons of greenhouse gases today. That's the equivalent of um, 116 dirty coal-fired power plants. And the U.S. plastics industry alone is on track to release more greenhouse gas emissions than all coal-fired power plants by 2030. So plastics is the new coal. We're joined today on Zoom by Kevin O'Brien, founder and president of the Papahanao Mokuakea Marine Debris Project. Hi, Kevin. Good morning, Bob and Mike Stout, author, musician, and plastics activist. Hi, Mike. How you doing, Bob? Mike, let's start with you. As a musician and activist, I know that you fought for workers' rights, health, safety. You've started food banks, economic development councils. You've spoken out on global warming and fracking, and you're a founding member of Pennsylvania's United for Single-Payer Healthcare. You've worked in a lot of social areas. 
tell us what's brought your attention to plastics and how would you explain this problem to our listeners? First off, I'm in Western Pennsylvania in the Pittsburgh area. So uh, everybody understands we're in the foothills of Appalachia. And uh, I've been uh, uh, into the environmental movement since I went to the first Earth Day in uh, April 22nd, uh, 1970, and have been more or less involved in the environmental movement uh, for many, many decades. And uh, what I think what really tipped the, uh, the balance for me to really focus on plastics uh, was, you know, we have a fracking problem in Western PA. Uh, we have 17,000 fracking wells now just in Western Pennsylvania. And it's just, it's, it's a massacre going on here uh, right now. But what drew me to the issue of plastics was, uh, I guess it was about six or seven years ago, I saw a movie uh, called Plastics Paradise, which was produced by a, a young uh, Asian woman in uh, Hawaii. And uh, she actually went to uh, a number of islands uh, where plastic had been accumulating. And uh, she vividly showed in the movie what it was doing to wildlife and to animals and to uh, uh, fish and uh, the ocean. And the movie blew me away. I mean, the movie literally shot me into this frantic, uh, manic uh, uh, need to not only recycle uh, more plastic, uh, but to find solutions uh, uh, that were not just temporary or short-term, but long-range. Uh, as you said, Bob, we've got a serious, serious, catastrophic problem with plastics. There was a, a Pew Charitable Trust and uh, Systemic uh, LTD. Uh, there was a consulting firm uh, uh, several years ago. Uh, they uh, did a, a major study on the world's oceans and said that uh, by 2040, uh, plastic in the oceans is going to triple what it is now. Uh, nearly 13 million tons of plastic uh, find their way into our oceans every single year. Uh, current commitments would only reduce this, uh, this uh, volume by seven, a mere 7%. Uh, our waterways uh, in uh, uh, Pittsburgh area, the Ohio River, the Monongahela, the Allegheny uh, are just clogged with plastics. Uh, in, in particular, uh, Lake Erie, and the Great Lakes uh, literally have now thousands and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of tons of plastic. Most of it is microplastics. Most of it is, uh, there's a lot, we have our fair share of bottles and, and pieces of plastic, but most of it's breaking down into microplastics. And microplastics and, mono, uh, and nanoplastics are the uh, two that concern me the most because they're invisible. Uh, people don't see them. And people don't see the harm that they're doing, uh, not only to our planet, uh, but to our uh, wildlife and to the fish, to the oceans and to the human body. Uh, Allegheny uh, County and uh, Western Pennsylvania uh, now in the tri-state, what we call the tri-state region, has become a focal point uh, for plastics and petrochemical production. Unsatisfied with the problems they have down in Cancer Alley, which for those of you who don't know, uh, Cancer Alley is southern, southwestern Louisiana and southeastern Texas, where the majority of petrochemical uh, plants are located. Uh, but uh, now what's happened is they've decided to move uh, major portions of their operations. I'm talking about the corporations, uh, ExxonMobil, Shell, the corporations that produce the plastic uh, are moving their operations into uh, uh, the tri-state area and the Appalachian region. Why? The reasons are real simple. Uh, climate uh, change and climate chaos 
uh, in the form of tornadoes, hurricanes, et cetera, are severely disrupting production down in the uh, uh, southern uh, Louisiana region down there. Also, uh, the flooding has been a, a major obstacle for them to deal with down there. And uh, also uh, transportation issues arose. So what they decided to do was they decided to move uh, production and uh, build new production facilities up in this tri-state region. And the reason is, is obvious. Number one, uh, they have access to fracking. And fracking uh, and gas, uh, that is what uh, petrochemicals come from. Uh, and uh, we have 17,000 fracking wells in Western Pennsylvania alone. So uh, Shell decided to build uh, their first pilot project plant, uh, which is going into operation this year. And the new Shell facility, which is just about a half an hour north of Pittsburgh, they intend to produce 80 trillion nurdles a year. Tiny pellets of plastic it's, that are used for manufacturing. That's the raw material. Uh, it's literally, you can't even see it. So what they're going to do is uh, they're going to bring this pilot project uh, online, uh, the construction of this plant, uh, which is going to produce 2.2 million tons of nurdles uh, annually and uh, uh, a total of 80 trillion nurdles each year. And the construction of this plant, uh, by the way, was subsidized by us, the taxpayers, to the tune of $1.65 billion. So it's like we are subsidizing the uh, petrochemical and fossil fuel industries putting a knife in us. It literally boils down to that. Uh, plastic production and consumption is something that people need to understand. Uh, it started back in the 1950s, uh, major uh, uh, plastic production and consumption, but it snowballed into large scale production. Uh, and today, uh, as of 2020, 2021, we're now uh, producing an estimated uh, 30 to 34 million tons of plastic waste uh, enters into our lakes, rivers, and oceans every single year. Uh, the rough weight of the, uh, this is the weight of, uh, if you want to know what that is in real terms, it's the weight, uh, same weight of 21,000 rail locomotives. Uh, in 2018 and uh, 2019 alone, uh, 359 million tons and then 375 million tons of plastic were produced worldwide. Each year, somewhere around 250,000 tons of nurdles spill and leachate into the ocean and into our waterways every single year. In fact, uh, the industry itself admits that roughly 10 to 15 percent of the nurdles spill on the way from uh, where they're produced to where they're going for the uh, production of actual uh, manufactured goods. 15% of that, the nurdle spill, and it's a common thing. Uh, several years ago, there was a spill in the Mississippi River. 743 million nurdles fell into the river uh, on August 2nd, 2020. It was three weeks before they set a crew down to clean it up. Three weeks is a lifetime for plastic nurdles. They're all over the place. They're probably in the uh, Mississippi River, in the Ohio River, and everywhere else uh, in the Gulf uh, that goes down to the Gulf of Mexico uh, by the time they went to clean it up, including all over the land, all over the swamps, everything else down there. Uh, it's a major disaster. September 20th, uh, a story broke in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette that uh, ExxonMobil was looking to build uh, two more plants. 
in Washington and Greene counties just south of Pittsburgh, and also a uh, Chinese and a Thai firm uh, are negotiating with towns in uh, northern West Virginia and also uh, Southeast Ohio to build petrochemical plants. The idea being they would like a, a, a five major petrochemical plants to go online in this area within the next two or three years. This is an ex existential crisis for us. And I, I hope it goes without saying that the effect this is having on our area along with the fracking is just spikes, major spikes in cancer and all sorts of autoimmune diseases and everything else. It's, it's death for us up here. Uh, so what in I said about big oil, you know, moving out of the um, you know, gasoline refinement and power coal industries moving into petrochemicals to produce plastics, you're actually seeing that happen in your part of the world. You're seeing those plants go up. The uh, petrochemical industry is the salvation for the oil and gas industry. This is their end product. This is where they're going to make all their money. And this is where they're making their money today in the plastics industry. The problem we have, uh, uh, you know, and Kevin, will, uh, I'm sure he'll explain a little bit more, too, about, you know, what they're facing in the ocean uh, uh, with cleanup stuff. But uh, the, the major problem I think we face along with the actual uh, plastic itself is the perception of plastic and the perception of plastic, which uh, uh, people look at plastic and uh, you ask them, well, what does plastic mean to you? That means convenience to them. It means a lot of uh, things they can buy uh, that they couldn't buy in the past because it's so much cheaper than glass and uh, other containers that plastic came in. But in fact, plastic should be seen in another way. Plastic equals poison. Plastic equals death. Plastic equals the destruction of our planet, the destruction of our oceans, and the destruction of all our waterways and life as we know it on planet Earth. And uh, yeah. the reality is we are the ones that are financing it. There's not a petrochemical plant out there that could exist without taxpayer subsidies. And uh, in fact, not only are we financing it, but we're stuck with the cleanup. Yes, we are. And speaking of cleanup, let's jump over to Kevin. Kevin, you've spent, what, 12 years with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration running ship-based marine research projects across the Pacific. And I think a lot of that was large-scale marine debris cleanups. Um, you know, you've started your, your own nonprofit now, the Papahanao Maukuakea Marine monument to clean up that monument area. And these are some of the remotest areas in the world, I believe. What are you actually seeing on the beaches there in the reefs? What, what is it you're cleaning up? Yeah, thanks, Bob. Um, you know, uh, we, we I think, you know, we were kind of operating on the other side of the plastics issue from the production and, and, and the, the front end, and we see the results of the back end. And I think uh, just by virtue of the area that we work in, we have a really unique perspective, I think, to add to the to the problem itself. And that is, like you mentioned, we work exclusively in the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument, which most people don't realize that the, uh, the Hawaiian Island chain extends for an additional 1,300 miles past the main populated islands. And it consists of about 10 uninhabited islands and atolls, you know, that stretch all the way up to Midway, which I think most people probably have heard of from the World War II reference, but that we have... Uh, an incredibly large region. It's, it's uh, 583,000 square miles of reef, open ocean, 
and then um, small island uh, sort of territory. And that um, it's a national monument, it's a wildlife refuge, and it's a place where, you know, it's, it's the remotest end of the most geographically remote archipelago in the world. And if there was ever a place where this problem shouldn't be impacting things, it's the islands of Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument. But when you head up there, what you see is, is you know, the evidence of a really runaway, outsized problem. So, you know, here we have um, these islands, which are, you know, 14 million seabirds of, you know, 22 different species nest here. Like you can barely walk around on the islands because uh, there's a nest every five feet you know, on the ground and that sort of thing. You know, we have 70% of all the coral reefs in the United States lie in this area. And what you see is just an incredible shocking amount of plastic on the shorelines and also derelict fishing nets or ghost nets um, that wind up getting snagged on the coral reefs, causing all sorts of issues for the endangered Hawaiian monk seal and threatened green sea turtle with entanglement um, in these hazards and stuff. And so I think the perspective that, that the work that we do can add to the conversation is really, you know, a lot of people in populated areas may walk up and down their local beaches or waterways in Pennsylvania, for instance, and see plastics. But what isn't right up in your face every day is that interaction between those plastics and wildlife. And so what we can provide are those really, really shocking, you know, images and stories of, of the daily, hourly interaction between wildlife and these plastics, um, you know, I should add that these ghost nets are also made of plastic polymer. It's not just plastic washing up on the sand, you know, it's plastic washing up on the sand and then a, an endangered seabird chick might swallow it. So it obviously affects not only our health, but the health of all the other creatures on the planet. Right. You're talking about plastic walking, washing up on one of the most remote islands in the world. I mean, is, is this the microplastics or a sludge, or are you actually seeing intact bottles, bags, whatever, washing up on these beaches? You know, we see uh, a bit of both. Primarily, it's the bigger stuff. The ghost nets, that's the hard plastic fishing buoys, that's the laundry baskets that are, that are used in the fishing industry. And then, of course, like the consumer plastics, um, drinking bottles, you know, plastic forks and all that sort of thing is also very much present. It's just interesting what a thousand or 2000 mile trip across the ocean sort of weeds out. And I think a lot of those lighter, more fragile plastics either break apart or they biofoul with algae growing on them, for instance, and then they become negatively buoyant and sink to the bottom. And I'd be very interested to see what's on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean um, versus what remains floating. Uh, oh, that's so. kind of scary. And that's interesting to see what is surviving. You know, the, the plastic utensils we get from fast food, they're 2,000 miles of ocean just floating over there and landing on these beaches. You know, and pretty much if you can, if, if it's made of plastic and you can imagine it, um, we've, we've found it, you know. I mean, bowling balls, car bumpers, you know, motorcycle helmets, like it, literally anything that you can imagine, golf clubs um, that may even have a, a a chance of floating it's it's yeah. made it out there um it's kind of like a scavenger hunt honestly it's really interesting what we find but also very sobering at the same time uh, tell me a little bit um in just a few minutes here how much trash are you picking up how often do you go up there how much are you hauling off these beaches sure so right now we're on a uh, the, the level that we have funded for um our level of effort has us being out there 
in these islands and reefs for 60 days a year. Um, so in order to do that, we have to charter a ship. Uh, it's a 180 foot supply ship and that ship will, uh, take us up there. You know, it's uh, about a thousand miles to the, to the, to the closest, uh, place that we work. And so it takes a couple of days to get up there and then we work up there as long as we can and then, and then come back and, it's obviously, you know, expensive, but it's a, it's a very remote area and it, that's just what it takes to do these cleanups. You're talking tons. I mean, how, how much, sure. how much plastic by weight volume? How do you do that? Just poundage. So, uh, this season that we just completed, we were up there for 60 days and we came back with a total of, uh, 200,000 pounds. You know, there's enough plastic up there to keep us busy for more time than we are able to spend there. And so it's just a matter of, how much funding we can get and how much time we can spend up there um, because the there's no shortage of plastic, I should say, to remove there. So okay. yeah, each, thir- each 30 day project on the ship um, we bring home seems about on average 100,000 pounds. Is this um, just working your way up and down the chain or do you find yourself recleaning the same areas? We do find ourselves recleaning the same areas. You know, as you might imagine, just the oceanographic currents and factors up there are pretty complex. So many of these locations up in the National Monument where we work are actually atolls. And so for the listeners, you know, an atoll is, a, is, is basically a ring of coral reef, you know, and you have the breakers and the waves that crash on the barrier reef. And then in the middle, you have a calm lagoon that, um, you know, hosts some of the coral species that prefer that sort of calm, shallow environment. And so what you have in, in many cases are little small sand islands that then pop up around the perimeter of that barrier reef. And so you have shallow coral gardens with calm waters and you have small sandy islands um, scattered around the rim. So any of this debris or plastics, you know, that makes it in over the barrier reef either gets snagged up on the shallow coral gardens in the interior of the lagoon, obviously with its own host of problems in terms of smothering and killing coral, but also you have, you know, the sandy shoreline area. So all in general, most of the plastics, buoyant plastics end up on the shorelines and most of the nets end up on the reefs. Relative to what I said to what uh, Kevin's doing, Bob, is that here he is, you know, uh, trying to deal with this mess on his end. And meanwhile, on our end, not only do we deal with the same kind of mess he does in the Great Lakes and the rivers uh, and the Gulf over this way, but at the same time, uh, according to the American uh, uh Chemical Council, uh, they just announced, in fact, uh, about a year and a half ago, that they have 300, 300 new petrochemical plants coming online uh, in the next five years. I think about two dozen of them already have licenses and are in the process of being built. So he here he is with his friends uh, and co-workers out there, and they empty the stuff all out of these island atolls, et cetera, et cetera only to come back and have the same stuff. And it's just going to keep getting worse the way we're going. It's, it's, and there's no, there's no way uh, that it's ever going to be dealt with until we stop the production at the front end. You know, Absolutely. and that's a, that's a really interesting point. I think the, the, uh, the example, the visual example that everyone gives here is, you know, if you come home and your bathtub is overflowing with water and the tap is running full, you know, full tilt, do you go in and start, you know, bucketing water off the floor and into the sink, or do you just go over and turn off the tap? And I think we've probably all heard that example, but um, turning off the tap would be working with the producers, 
or working on, you know, better circular product life cycles for these plastic products that we can't avoid producing. But so from our end, you know, we're working on a treadmill to just keep up with the problem. And, and I guess the way that I've, I like to think about it is that for us, it's, it's a very important place. Like the place itself is exceptionally unique in the world. Um, it's important culturally to, um, the Hawaiian, uh, you know, uh, the Hawaiian people. It's very, very closely linked to so many narratives about um, Hawaiian culture and cosmology. And we, we have all these protected species and, and essentially what amounts to a really, really precious, intact marine ecosystem that I think you can find probably nowhere else on earth. You know, you head up there to these islands and the seabirds may have never seen a human and they'll come and land on your head, that kind of thing. And I think that's so unique in this world. And so for us, it's about mitigating a threat that we can do something about. So obviously, you know, your listeners are pretty well tuned into climate issues. And so obviously these same islands and coral reefs are dealing with a host of climate related problems, you know, ocean acidification, coral bleaching, rising temperatures, and all this sort of thing. And the way that for us, it's helpful to think about it is yes, we're on a treadmill, but it's kind of a triage situation. You know, there's these big nebulous problems resulting from climate change that they're getting, you know, all the, uh, the habitats and the animals are getting hit at from multiple angles. And here's this issue of plastics. We can actually do something about it. And so going up and removing these hazards from the environment, essentially just give them a little better chance of surviving the other hazards. You're listening to The Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. We're speaking with Mike Stout and Kevin O'Brien about the climate impact of plastics. You know, an estimated, and I think, Mike, you touched on this, an estimated 9 billion tons of fossil fuel plastics have been produced since it was invented in the 1950s, but only 9% of those plastics have been recycled. The rest is either in landfills, it's been burned, which obviously is releasing toxic fumes, greenhouse gases, or it's polluting our land, waterways, and oceans. So I'd like to talk about how we fix this. You know, we've touched on some stuff. But what are the solutions? Mike, for you, what are the solutions? I think there's uh, three, three major solutions uh, that need to be uh, tackled if we're going to fundamentally deal with this problem. And of course, uh, Kevin's dealing with one of those uh, solutions, and that's the cleanup. Uh, the only problem I have with that is I think the corporations uh, should be responsible and pay for the cleanup. The people that actually do the polluting the fossil fuel companies and the petrochemical companies. Back in the 1970s, uh, it, when we, the, uh, uh, with the birth of the environmental movement and the oil spill, standard oil spill out, off the West Coast and the uh, fire in the Cuyahoga River and the, uh, the mess we had in the Love Canal, uh, we mounted a movement, a political movement, a citizen's movement, and we forced the government, which would, by the way, was a Republican government under Richard Nixon, uh, we forced the government to set up a super fund, which companies like GE and Standard Oil had to pay into and pay for the cleanup. Well, what happened is that uh, super fund law ran out uh, when Bush came in, uh, uh, Bush two, and uh, it, it was never re reenacted. It was never uh, re-upped. So now there's nobody responsible for cleaning up uh, these this mess, except for people like Kevin and his organizations. Uh, but the other two things, I want to say three things. Uh, uh, one uh, is the question of perception. I think it's one thing to tell this stuff to people, but when they see it and they see uh, Midway Island 
and they see the birds on there that are, are dead and you cut those birds open and they have large pieces of plastics inside them. I mean, it's just, un, you know, that's what, that's what shook me up. When I saw it in front of my face in that movie, Plastics Paradise, it took me, it put me into hyperspeed to deal with this problem. We need a serious, serious educational program in this country. And it's not something that one organization can do. It's not something that one portion of government can do. It's something that the entire movement and all those people who are concerned about this issue need to get together and, and put a program together that reaches the average American citizen out there in both the rural as well as the city areas, uh, the urban areas. Uh, without that education program, people are never going to understand just how serious this problem is. That's number one. Number two, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, that I work with, they wring their hands, you know, about, oh, my God, we can't. This problem's too big. We can't do nothing about it. Well, we can. I think uh, we can do two things about it. Number one, uh, we can take personal responsibility and say we're not going to be a part of this problem anymore. And uh, uh, we can stop. We can refuse to use plastic at every turn and every possible place we can. Uh, we can uh, reduce and we can reuse uh, what plastic we do buy. So uh, I did a little 20 minute video. Uh, the Isaac Walton League uh, chapter that I'm part of did a 20 minute video and I showed people how they could reduce their plastic usage by refusing, reducing and reusing and then recycle only after those three uh, avenues have been uh, pursued. And uh, in fact, uh, by doing those three things, uh, my wife and I, we, we literally have one bag of garbage about every three months, one bag of garbage. That's how much plastic and compost waste we throw away. Uh, uh, we have uh, a, a very uh, active composting program, myself and other members of our Allegheny County chapter. For those who don't know, uh, composting, uh, uh, compostable, uh, such as food and uh, uh, vegetable and uh, uh, fruit waste accounts for oh, anywhere from a third to a half of all garbage that goes into landfills. Plastic is, is a whole big portion of the rest. Uh, so what, what we've done is we go out and we try to teach people how to do those three things before they even consider recycling. Uh, on the recycling end, uh, we have teamed up with a company here. Uh, in the uh, Allegheny County area called Michael Brothers, whose sole business is recycling uh, plastic, uh, metals, and glass. And what they've done is they've taken up the slack and filled the vacuum that the government has left when they abandoned uh, their ship it all over to Southeast Asia and China uh, program of uh, uh, single-use uh, uh, single source plastic uh, recycling. Uh, what Michael Brothers did is they uh, uh, took up the uh, call and uh, uh, actually we investigated and met with them and they were very transparent in showing us where their recycled uh, plastic was going. They're number one, they're number two, and they're number three to seven. They actually turned us on to the companies that were taking their plastic refuse uh, and recycling material and turning it into other plastic. That was very important because people are very uh, you know, they, they don't trust anybody. They don't trust the government. They don't trust the corporations. Uh, and to show people where the stuff is actually going was critical. So that kind of uh, uh, take responsibility yourself, I think, gives people not only uh, hope, but gives people, uh, it, it, it defeats that, those feelings of 
uh, hopelessness and that we can't do anything and we can't be part of the solution. But more importantly, we need uh, policy changes and we need a serious, serious policy changes. And the policy changes are threefold. Number one, increase the public sector's involvement in actual recycling. Uh, and that means public policy. Number two, we've got to stop subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. Uh, we have spent over $300 million subsidizing just the petrochemical industry itself uh, in the last decade. Uh, basically, we're like signing, it's like signing your death warrant. It's like giving uh, somebody robbing you a gun to shoot you. Uh, it's, it's outrageous. They, we've got to stop the taxpayer subsidies of this and divert that money into stuff that's going to change policy and clean the mess up. Uh, so on the one hand, we've got to stop subsidizing them. And on the other hand, we've got to force them to uh, be responsible and pay for their cleanup. And most importantly, number three, we've got to shift production to a type of production that is more circular, uh, a circular economy. Uh, and it's uh, in Europe where I toured singing for eight years. Uh, there's a number of uh, countries, uh, Germany, France, uh, and uh, some Scandinavian countries that are heavy into what they call a closed loop economy. A closed loop economy means you do not, are not allowed to produce anything that can't be recycled and reused. Uh, and, the, and that the recycling loop is endless. It goes on. And uh, uh, the principal uh, thing about that is that there's no such concept or thing as garbage. It might be in a landfill, it might be in the river, it might be off the uh, atolls uh, that Kevin's cleaning up, but there's no such thing as garbage. It's always here. The other thing to understand uh, that uh, you raised, Bob, is gar there's no such thing as plastic ever going away and ever disappearing. If you burn it, the chemicals and the uh, nanoplastics go into the atmosphere, into the air, and people breathe it. If you, if you throw it into a landfill, it leachates into the water. When the sun hits it, it breaks it down and it becomes microplastics and nanoplastics. It's always, always here. If you don't understand that concept that plastic is here forever, then you don't understand the need to switch to a closed loop economy. So those three things I think uh, along with the personal responsibility are critical if we're gonna ease the burden on people like Kevin that are cleaning up this mess on his end. That's great. And Kevin, let's go to your end. I mean, as, as we've all been saying, as Mike said, it, it really takes two. We have to stop adding more plastic to the system, but then we've got to clean up what's out there. We can't continue to live with this with this health hazard. Um, you're doing the cleanup. What, what other solutions are there? Do you see expanding what you're doing? Do you see other groups picking up what you're doing and taking to other places of the world? What are your solutions? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, there's so many great organizations and individuals kind of working on the problem from our side as well. Um, I mean, we, we sort of see this, you know, our, actually our one of our mottos on the website is humanity is united by the ocean. And that's a wonderful idea until you think about that the, the ocean also unites all of humanity's collective waste, <laughs> you know, into the same place. And to us, it's it's a it's a complicated international problem, you know, and when you're talking about um, many other countries, many of them uh, less developed, you have an incredible difficult time um, creating any kind of policy that's a broad blanket policy that covers all of these nations, nations that may be engaged in, you know, for instance, commercial fishing. And so the question we get 
actually most often is where's this stuff coming from? You know, and I mentioned that most of what we clean up appears to be from the fishing industry. And so it's a really difficult problem to answer. And we've collaborated recently on a project that hopes to at least make some progress towards finding out, you know, which fisheries, for instance, most of these derelict fishing nets are coming from, but that from our side of things, you know, being a, a, a responsible consumer of seafood uh, also relies upon us knowing uh, which seafood may be causing the problem. And we don't have those answers yet. So that's a big um, solution that we need, like a code that we need to crack in terms of making progress on, on what we find at least. And also I think, you know, marine debris and plastics in general in the environment is, is a bit of a, a, almost like a, a problem that's a luxury to be able to think about. And I think in many of these less developed countries, people are really primarily concerned with getting food on the table, you know, catching enough fish, whatever it may be. And that uh, worrying about plastics in the environment is definitely not at the top of their list. And so I think um, everywhere across the world, you know, people, people, people run on the bottom line. And so if there's a, a way that we can collectively work to incentivize proper recycling or disposal or to monetize the raw material itself in a bit better way, you know, and then work on infrastructure um, in many of these developing places, obviously the solution is to not produce as much plastic and to, to you know, you vote with your dollar. So if you choose not to consume plastic like Mike and kudos to you, Mike, that's a really, really dedicated, um, uh, you know, act, act that you've done there, uh, not, not consuming plastic to that degree. And that's amazing. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, I think that um, we need to be able to somehow incentivize, like if we went out and cleaned up a hundred thousand pounds of ghost net and brought it back and someone was willing to pay us for that raw material, we wouldn't be the only ones doing it. Yeah. I was going to ask you, you're bringing home these hundreds of thousands of pounds every trip. What happens to that plastic? You're taking it off the beaches, but where is that plastic going? Sure. So we bring it back to Oahu, which is the main populated island here in Hawaii. And, you know, we're an island, <laughs> we have limited options and we've been working really hard to try to find other alternatives to what we currently do, which is um, we have actually a really great um, partnership with Snitzer Steel Corporation and then Covanta Energy. And so what happens with it, because there's no other alternative besides the landfill, is that it gets chopped up into small pieces and then it gets incinerated to generate electricity, you know, which is not a perfect solution. Um, we are an island and all of our electricity for the most part comes from burning municipal waste. And so <laughs> that is the available option to us right now. We're pretty excited about a new opportunity that we've just been collaborating on, um, you know, to um, use some of these polymers as a, instead of virgin polymers in the asphalt mix on some roads here in Hawaii. So there's a pilot project going on that we've, um, we've, uh, promise to give some, some raw plastic material to. And I think, you know, we, we have a different situation here in that our options are so limited being on an Island um, that, uh, you know, I think we're just trying to do the best we can and get it out of the environment in that very special sensitive place. But um, you know, the more we can do to find a really robust um, solution here, you know, it's definitely a huge priority for us. Are you aware of any other groups around the world that are doing plastic removals on the scale you are? You know, I, I do. There are a couple of groups. There's actually a for-profit company called 4Ocean that um, 
it's a, they, they pay people in many locations in Southeast Asia and the Caribbean to skim plastics. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the consumer marine debris comes from waterways, you know, like Mike mentioned. And so, um, trying to skim that stuff, you know, at the river, river mouths or in these, you know, near shore areas before it gets further offshore and they're pulling a, a incredible amount of tonnage out. And there, there are just a lot of groups that are doing, you know, local beach cleanups and that sort of thing on a small scale, um, everywhere around the Pacific that I know of. Um, but our operation is fairly unique in that it's a large scale ship-based operation. We launch boats from a ship, you know, we have a team of free divers to dive down, you know, up to 30 feet deep with no scuba tanks and cut this stuff off the reef. And so I don't know of anybody doing that type of work um, on the scale we are, but I'm just always, my heart is always warmed by the number of people who are involved in this issue around the world in the Pacific. And Bob, we are uh, uh, at part of a uh, coalition is called Break Free from Plastics, which is worldwide. And uh, we actually have uh, activists uh, working on the plastics issue in probably somewhere around 50 different countries. And uh, Break Free from Plastics is mostly young people, mostly women. And I, I think that makes a huge difference uh, in terms of uh, energy, in terms of vitality, in terms of commitment, in terms of uh, people who know what's on the line because they're the ones that are going to have to be dealing with this stuff. But a couple other things I just wanted to add here that people should know about. Uh, nanoplastics, which obviously Kevin doesn't clean up uh, per se, uh, although inadvertently he probably does, is the most dangerous. Nanoplastics and microplastics go to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, the phytoplankton and our entire food chain is consuming the plastics, not just the stuff at the top uh, that Bob sees in the birds and uh, wildlife, but uh, the phytoplankton and the, uh, the coral reefs, they're all getting crushed uh, by the plastic. Uh, another thing is in terms of policy changes. We don't even have the basic stuff that other countries have delved into. Like, for instance, we have no database of manufacturers who make plastic pellets, where it's coming from. We don't even know. I mean, there's nobody in the government that even has a grip on that. And I'd like to also add to, uh, you know, I'm a, as you probably know, Bob, uh, I've been an anti-war activist since roughly around uh, 1967. Uh, Kevin, I'm really, really old. I'm old enough almost to be your grandfather. So uh, I am. Uh, but uh, the U.S. military is by far the biggest polluter on the planet and produces more plastic and waste than the top five biggest petrochemical companies in the world. Uh, this is, uh, if we don't change policy here, you have 800 military bases around the world. They all have these burn uh, burn piles where they're just burning plastic and throwing it into the atmosphere for no, uh, it's just poisoning people. And uh, if you don't, uh, uh, if you don't change our foreign policy uh, and deal with that issue, you're not going to deal fundamentally with the plastics issue. Uh, and the other fact I want people to know in terms of the uh, personal responsibility is that plastic packaging represents about 65% of all household trash in this country, 65%. That shows you that if we could get enough citizens on the program uh, and get enough citizens involved in our movement, we can make a dent uh, in the problem. And let me just add this too, is a lot of people think they're doing uh, something good uh, by using plastic water bottles. Well, 
over the last year, uh, in fact, annually over the last couple of years, uh, the, the major three uh, places where people get uh, poisoned by plastics and the chemicals that go into the plastics is the air, bottled water, and seafood. That's where most of the people ingest the majority of their plastics. In fact, uh, we in the United States ingest 90,000 microplastic particles every year just from drinking bottled water, 90,000. If you were drinking out of your tap water, it would be 4,000, as bad as the tap water is and the chemicals in there. Also, the amount of cap, uh, uh, food you're ingesting, the amount of, uh, uh, if you show people a credit card, the size of a credit card, which I know a credit card is uh, two and an eighth inches uh, by four, uh, the size of a credit card, every human being, in the United States and probably worldwide ingests a credit card's worth of plastic every week. One credit card, every human being in this country, at least. And that's not counting the people that uh, uh, do more of that. So, I mean, these are issues if you don't educate the public about what is going on and try to at least attempt to draw the dotted lines between their habits and their consuming uh, uh, stuff that they're doing daily with the problem on Kevin's in cleaning the stuff up. If you don't show it to people in full color and show them what damage it's being done, not only to the planet and the wildlife, but to themselves, we're never going to get anywhere changing policy. We're talking about refusing plastics, reusing them, reducing. Mike, I know you've composed a new single called Refuse, Reuse, Reduce. Now, we don't normally play music on the Climate Hour, but I think your song is a perfect way to end this program today. Can I have your permission to play it? Absolutely. Yes, you do. Right. Okay, so here's Refuse, Reuse, Reduce, composed and performed by Mike Stout.
Cancer clusters way off the charts Killing children, ripping our hearts Sacrificial zones all over these parts I want to know from where it starts Stress, trauma in every family You and sarcoma, daily homily There's heartache and drama So thank you both for joining us today. Where can we send our listeners to learn more about your work, Kevin? Yes, um, listeners can go to www.pmdphawaii.org. PMDP is our acronym that stands for the Papahanaumokuakea Marine Debris Project. And you can follow us on social media at PMDP Hawaii. Thank you. Mike, where can people go to learn more about your work? Uh, I'm with the uh, Isaac Walton League of America, which is the biggest uh, and oldest conservation group in the United States. We're celebrating our 100th anniversary this year. And uh, our website is HTTPS colon two backslashes or front slashes. I'm sorry. Allegheny-IWLA.org. And if they want to get a hold of me personally and get copies of uh, songs or music or whatever, uh, you can go to my website, www.mikestoutmusic.com. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. We welcome your questions and feedback. You can learn more about the Climate Hour at climatehour.net. That's climatehour.net. This is the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. <laughs>